Welcome back to Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast, where life, sports, and medicine intersect. We're very glad that you continue to support this podcast. You can get the information on any platform uh, where podcasts are played, as well as getting the video content on YouTube. But if you want to just get one place to find all the content, go to my website at drgarrickthesportsdoctor.com and you will find everything on that website. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, so welcome back to another episode of Time Out with the Sports Doctor podcast. And we have another very interesting interview for you today. Um, I have another fellow physician. I have another fellow podcaster, pediatrician, but way more than just a pediatrician, also a consultant, a mother, and a practice owner as well. So I would like to introduce you to Dr. Omalara Uwe Madimo, um, who is joining us today. Hopefully I got the name close to right. If not, hey, I'm going to let her say it herself. So first of all, just say your name, see how bad I messed it up, and then tell us a little introduction about yourself. You didn't do bad. Um, thank yeah. you so much, Dr. Derek. Um, Omolara Thomas Uemadimo. You did not do badly at all. So yeah, yeah. thank you hey, well, for the I opportunity. To, absolutely. I went to Howard, so I can't miss it too bad. I've been <laughs> saying Nigerian names for a long time. I'm now. saying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we to go. I'm sure we have some connections, uh, some close connections, but yeah. Yeah. Um, no, thank you so much. As you said, I'm a pediatrician. I, this year actually will be year 20 um, from medical school. So that's a little crazy for me. But my background is a New Yorker and a Nigerian American. And my work really stems from kind of this focus that I've had since I was young around health equity and just like justice. And I think that came from my immigrant background and just like a global health lens. It was a lot of work initially in my career was focused on just personally being outside of the U.S. and seeing a lot of the injustice that was happening in health. And then as I grew into my healthcare career, very focused on global health, I actually spent the first decade of my life outside of working in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America, in the Caribbean, and finally ended up coming back because I found that clinical medicine had this like challenging piece where you could do good work in under-resourced areas, but the system always was the issue and how could we actually support the system. So I ended up coming back to the U.S. to do a master's in public health to learn how to like health strengthen health systems, evaluate programs, and in that work ended up an academic. So <laughs> I came back and did a lot of research and focused on caring for children inside of large academic centers here in New York, where I'm based, and ultimately ended up teaching on global health and health equity and running a global health program. Over time, it was about seven years or so, I got very burnt out. And that is the transition that I made into my current work that I do as a practice owner and a consultant. So that's a little bit about me. So tell us, number one, how do you end up in sub-Saharan Africa practicing medicine right out of training? What... <laughs> Yeah. Andrew, what was it that led you that way? Yeah, I mean, uh, so a few things. One, my first trip outside of the U.S. was during medical school, and it was in 2000 to Kenya, and I had gotten this like fellowship, basically a little Scotland fellowship scholarship to go for three months, and I was really excited to do this because I just 
felt like as someone who, you know, has roots in Africa had gone, but I felt like I'd never been able to make the connection between my medical work and my personal connection. And so that was the first time. And once I saw the amount of poverty, the difficulty in terms of just having access to all of the things that we take for granted, I got hooked on being able to go back, being able to think about what else could we do and just doing that. And so throughout medical school, I ended up going, finding time, doing extra calls to go to get enough time to go to Cuba and then going to Nigeria. And then during residency, it was even worse, as you may imagine, trying to do calls and get the time, but ended up doing more of that work, going to Lesotho and all of these places. And back then, it's not, it wasn't as easy. There weren't as many opportunities, but there was this one opportunity at Baylor, Baylor Pediatric AIDS Initiative, and they, they were sending doctors straight out of residency to help support pediatric HIV. And they were paying them $40,000 a year. And my mom was kind of just like befuddled at why I would leave. <laughs> but she was like, what are you doing with your life? But that was exactly what I wanted to do. And I ended up being matched to Malawi. And I spent a year and a half in Malawi doing this work and helping to support getting kids with HIV on antiretrovirals and helping support that system there. That's great because, you know, many times we think as physicians, we have a box and we try to stay in it, right? And you're always told, you know, life outside the box can be scary. So we just... We go to school, we finish training, we pray for a job, right? And you pray for a job that works out because so many times it's bells and whistles and there's false advertisement. But I like the way that you just kind of followed your desires and followed your heart to go serve in other areas. And I'm sure that the experiences that you had then still shape the way you practice medicine now and the way that you're able to help people as a consultant as well. So kudos for for chasing your dreams in that in arena. Thank you. Yeah, it does. I mean, I like to say the way I practice medicine is very globally informed and outside of the box. I think working where you have limited resources makes I just think that there's so much that we do in medicine that we don't even realize comes from the ingenuity of how people were working in sub-Saharan Africa and that actually coming over here, especially the support Um, communities that are under-resourced. And so I just think there's this level of innovation and intolerance for the status quo (laughs) that is a part of of kind of how I move in healthcare here, which can be a little bit troubling in, in a lot of traditional healthcare facilities. Yeah. So tell us about your practice. So you have your own private practice, but you're also a consultant for other physicians as well, correct? Yeah. And not just physicians, but clinicians. So we support mental health clinicians as well as primary care physicians and even nonprofit that are providing health services. So yeah, so my practice basically was a, and my practice is a joint practice. I have two partners, Dr. Suzette and Dr. Nicole Brown, who are twin pediatricians, and um, they're my co-founders as well. And we started it out of a collective frustration um, with the healthcare system. I think for us, we're second generation, you know, immigrant Black women. And what we found was that in these large centers, most of we, one, there weren't a lot of us. Um, we all know the statistics, right? And that the majority of the families that we would see 
were disproportionately coming to us and also were low income with a lot of, you know, unmet social needs. And what we found was we were playing band, like we were patching things up. There was no way to, in the healthcare system to be able to say, okay, how can we support you to get your asthma? Well, if you're living in a shelter and if you have food insecurity. And so what we found ourselves doing was like trying to find community partners and doing all of this work. And um, it got frustrating because we knew that we weren't providing the best care, we were providing what we could. And so we had this idea where, what if we just brought the primary care to the organizations that were providing the social services so that it was easier for the communities to access because they were already going to those organizations for food, housing, you know, benefits. And now we could get their health care in that same area. And that was the genesis of a pilot where we got a grant to actually start this with a community partner who had been my partner for about four years. And that was the first inception in 2019 was when we put it in. And 2020, during the pandemic in New York in April, it, ground zero, right, of the pandemic, we opened early our Strong Children Wellness. And then our brick and mortar opened in August when we could finally open up and see patients in person. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Number one, you have a Suzette in your practice. My, that's my daughter's name. And we oh. probably come across that maybe two or three times, period. You know. <laughs> yeah. And so you were able to open up a practice beginning of the pandemic, like you said, at the epicenter in New York City. What was that like? That had to be some scary moments like, okay, the world's shutting down and we're trying to open up. Yeah. So we did not expect to open in April. Um, we were actually on a timeline to open in June. And ultimately what happened was our community partner who we're partnering with on this initiative were like, our kids can't get seen. All of these practices are closing. They're trying to get into the ER, but the ERs, they're scared to go. And a lot of the families that we were serving with that community partner were immigrant families, were very low income, undocumented families. So there was a lot of barriers to them. And so we actually started virtually because our practice wasn't open, <laughs> like the, because of the timeline. So we started virtually just to make sure the kids, asthmatics were getting their meds and kids with other chronic disorders were able to see someone so that they could continue and not fall through the cracks and not have to go into the ER and expose themselves and their families. And so it was hectic. We were doing a lot of telehealth and still trying to get everything in order for the opening of the actual practice as well. And starting in person, you know, my co-founders did more on in-person clinical because I'm actually immunosuppressed. And that's another reason why I, my chronic disorder, that's another reason why I shifted to leaving academia. And it was crazy. Like just trying to get the PPE and like, learning, starting a new practice and also learning how to run things in this new model of care, right? Where we weren't used to it. One of the beautiful things though about this time was that it reminded me of caring in global health. Like it reminded the way that like things needed to move urgently, we needed to move in and out. It was very much like, oh, I've seen this before. I've seen this story before. And that was, I think, helpful for the rollout in terms of having that context. Yeah. So I always say that no steps are wasted, right? So it might've seemed like your mom was like, what is my daughter doing, right? (laughs) 
we're in America now. She's supposed to live during what is my daughter doing? But you were preparing for this time, right? Hmm. Because when the world was feel like it was going to end, you said, hey, I've been here before. I've seen this. I've been able to run a practice without having this, that, and the third. I'm ready. you know. And everybody can't do that. And I feel that you have a heart for the people, number one. You're a pediatrician, one of the most underappreciated <laughs> fields in medicine. Nobody else wants to take care of kids, but they don't want to pay pediatricians their worth. You know, so you're already doing a service and then you're serving the other population that no one else wants to serve. Right. So I feel that the work that you're doing is very important because we know that, like you said, and some of your other studies, Healthcare providing good health care is only one part, but you have to be able to communicate with the people, with the patient effectively, and you have to be able to understand the cultural norms to really be able to treat the whole patient, you know, and I think that your experiences throughout the world have really shaped you and allowed you to be able to do that. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us about Strong Children Wellness, because that's separate from your actual daily practice, correct? So Strong Children Wellness is the practice. It is. Yeah. Strong Children Wellness is the group practice. We've been in inception. Like I said, we started in 2020. Um, We are now we have two locations. We're opening a third location in hopefully Q1. This We're in the middle of hiring. We're at we have about 20 employees now and we are really focused on what we like to say is a community integrated practice model. So the model is really focused on being within the community and not in kind of this isolated area, like a lot of healthcare centers are, and really focused on under-resourced communities. So our locations are usually embedded within community-based organizations and so that we have this symbiotic relationship where if we identify unmet mental health or social needs, we do have our own team that can help support that. But then we also have the larger community-based organization that can provide even more in-depth resources and social services. The work that we do is pediatric focused, but family-centered. So even though we take care primarily of kids, we have a cohort of caregivers that we have internal medicine so we can take care of kids and their parents for those who need it. And we have a plethora of clinicians, including, like I said, pediatricians, internal medicine physicians, but then also we have mental health clinicians. And then we have care managers who are social workers who really support making sure that families get what they need. So our goal is to ensure that when a family comes to us, we're not just asking about their medical, but we're asking about how, what do you have food in the house? How's your housing? Do you have childcare so you can go work? What's the employment look like? And being able to have the resources that we can support them if they answer that they do have needs. No, that's amazing. That's a lot because you're doing (laughs) pediatrician work, social work, all that. Do you have social workers on your team or is it just? Yeah. No, we have social workers on our team. And honestly, I'll tell you when I was in the healthcare, like the academic health center, a lot of my, like the lot that my favorite part about the work was not, and I know people are going to kill me, but was not the like physical primary care. It was the relationships. And then trying to find all of these supports for families, because I just felt 
that was what catapulted them and then changed their outcomes and changed their health outcomes. And so I like to say, like, I was probably like a glorified social worker masquerading as a pediatrician. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. And then talk about, because you have to be able to make money to keep your doors open yeah. and yeah. you're serving an impoverished community. Mm -hmm. You're serving, you know, children. I'm sure many of them are on government assistance or Medicaid mm -hmm. or different things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So how are you able to Number one, help yeah. yourself, but also help other practices and be able to be still make money and be able to serve the underserved. If you're enjoying this episode, don't wait to the end to share it. Share it now. Share this with a friend or a colleague that you think might find value in this information. And then also make sure that you click and leave us a five star review and give us feedback because we really value your feedback and your input. Now back to the episode. Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, our population is about 85% Medicaid. So a lot of people ask us, are you an FQHC? And we're like, no, we're not. And we're not, we're a for-profit um, social enterprise. So the way that we do this was actually the way that we move is very different. And the reason is because that's how we started. Like I said, we started with a grant. So we didn't have any, we weren't going to go out, take a loan, you know, that we're triggered as physicians. It's like, oh God, not another loan. But we wanted to think about how we could have the money on hand to be able to start this because we know capital is so important. So because of our academic careers, we're all researchers. I was very familiar with grant writing. And what we tried to do was work with the nonprofit and who has access to grant dollars as a nonprofit and say, who are the funders? Who are people in your ecosystem that would want to do this? And we identified a funder who was really interested in this. And we wrote a letter of intent, an LOI. And we wrote that. And with that, we got our first $125,000 grant to get started. And through that relationship, what we found was that we could do this thing, which was called fiscal sponsorship. And what that means is that as a for-profit, you can actually work with nonprofits. And if you have an aligned mission, that nonprofit is able to now you know, say, okay, this is a new, you know, a for-profit that's bringing in a new service and we'd like to subcontract them in this grant so that they can get the money to be able to deliver this service. So over the first two years, we were able to get about $750,000 in grants. Now we have over a million dollars in grants that we've gotten yeah. to date. And then in addition, what we noticed in terms of grants was also being able to get contracts. And nonprofits were a really great place for that, where we could propose maybe do either being contracted to bring our provider into one of their places so that they could actually have services on hand. So we have contracts with foster care agencies where our providers will go out into those foster care agencies and provide care. And so with that diversified revenue, that allow for us to be able to have a lot more flexibility and not be like a lot of practices where it's very volume based and you just have to see as many people as possible. The other thing that I think is really important for practice owners to think about is 
the fact that Medicaid is changing and there are a lot of different models that are getting paid for because, and there's a lot of money coming through Medicaid and we were able to identify additional models that reimburse us to be able to provide larger types of care like the care management that we do and the behavioral health that we do. So all of that together, I think some people say in business, the work, the most scary number in business is one, because if one person, one revenue stream, there's always that ability for there to be a loophole. So I think our biggest thing was how many different ways can we make sure revenue is flowing in here so that we can stay afloat? And we've been able to grow quite successfully. Um, you know, we're a seven figure practice now, and that is really exciting for us. That's important because... Many times people are paralyzed, really, because of the thought of how am I going to financially take care of my family? How am I financially going to run this practice? How am I financially going to be able to chase this dream that I have? Right. And I want people to hear that there are, I mean, you just named five different ways of getting funding outside of going to get a loan from a bank. Right. So, mm. time out with the sports doctor needs a grant, number one. So, I need, to, <laughs> okay. I'm trying to help the people. So, I need a grant. Yeah, but I want people to hear that there are different streams of ways to finance a practice or different ways to run a practice than just getting a loan on your own. I don't know. I often am just like, you know, especially as a Black physician, I just feel like that we are shuttled to that, like to be dependent on that, like immediately. Like that's the only option. And I know with a lot of my clients now, so I started a consulting company called Melanin and Medicine, and that consulting company specifically helps BIPOC practice owners, primary care mental health practice owners, to be able to create contractual partnerships and relationships with nonprofits so that they can supplement and diversify their revenue so that they can have the cash flow and not have to be you know, pushed um, or tunneled to having to take out loans or, or you know, debt. And or equity, I think, uh, or have other people take their equity in their company. And so it's been really exciting because a lot of the practice owners are like, I had no clue whenever they like hear our model that this is even possible. But it's always exciting to see that practice owner get their first contract and they're like, oh, okay. And I don't have to see 800 patients to make this money too in the practice. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Well, first upon what BIPOC is for those who yeah. are listening and might not know. Yeah, so BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and or People of Color. And so pretty much mostly non-white, we're all non-white owners. So that is, that's who we serve and focus on. All right. So, and you're able to help other practices, like you said, health centers, nonprofits, for-profits, who should reach out to you for help? Yeah, we are expanding to um, larger health organizations, but I would say that we work with a different tier. We've worked for uh, practice owners that are like at 150K annual revenue to those that are at 2 million or more in annual revenue. And the goal there is just the fact that even if they're a practice owner that is like has been doing this for a long time, a lot of times what we find out is people are really on a single revenue stream and they're very burnt out and they're just and the profit margins are like really minimal. And so what we are able to do um, is come to us and we start to think about how can we position the practice to not just serve patients, but serve 
partners serve organizations. And that's the fun part where they're like, oh, I could get a contract to educate or train these organizations, or I could get a contract to provide health education to their clients that aren't solely focused on clinical care. And I think a lot of us underestimate how much we've developed and how much we have that is important and can be um, leveraged to nonprofits who are serving the populations we want to serve anyway. Oh, that's great. So on time out with the sports doctor, this is your final time out. So listening to your story, you know, you travel the world, you've done things, you've started your own practice, you've been in academics, you have a lot of experiences. So you, I think, really know what the word health equity means, right? Because you've seen it and you've seen impoverished in the United States, you've seen impoverished all over the world. What does it mean to you or what do you think, what steps do we have to do to take to really have health equity in the United States? Yeah. You know, honestly, if I can be very transparent, I am not, I don't feel sufficient with that health equity is sufficient. I feel like we need to move to a place where we are really focused on health justice. And what is the difference and what does that mean? So for me, health equity means that within what we have right now, how the structure is, then let's provide certain additional things for certain populations who aren't getting the same access, who aren't getting the same outcomes. However, what is the problem there is we don't think about why those differences exist. And health justice is really about going back and saying, why are these differences existing? And what do we need to do to eliminate those barriers? And a lot of times the problem with health justice is that it's deep work. So, and it's not healthcare focused. A lot of it is around, you know, um, residential segregation, right? A lot of it is around school differences or food deserts. And so I think that what my goal or what I think that we really need to move forward around is health justice. And it requires us as clinicians to step a little bit out of just seeing patients and really start to think about in my community, when I see my patients, what are the things that they're facing at a population or community level? And how do I need to get involved? We've seen some physicians that are like, I need to get into politics. We've seen some physicians that are like, I need to work with food pantries. We've seen some. And that I think is where, when we start to break down silos and start to make sure healthcare emerges in criminal justice, in food, in housing, that I think is where we'll start to really see not only good outcomes, but sustainable, really transformative change in our community. I think that's excellent. So, you know, like you're saying, seeing patients is not enough, right? Mm -hmm. The charge that we have is really to be able to take care of our community, not just say, hey, you have asthma, take this inhaler or take this antibiotic. If you're only doing that, you're not truly taking care of the whole individual. Yeah. 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 So thank you for number one coming on. Thank you for finding this podcast and reaching out to me. I told people at the end of the year, we're going to have some open mic sessions and this is exactly what it is. You reached out to me. I'm glad to have you on. I'm glad to learn more about your organization to just share your story in general. And that's really what I want to do to really be able to expand my platform and open it up to other people. So thank you again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Anything else you want to, any final thoughts? Only, I don't know if people are interested in learning about any of our stuff. So we do have strongchildrenwellness.com. 
Um, you can go there to learn about our practice. And then if you are a practice owner who really is like, hey, I want to figure this out, you can go to melaninandmedicine.co. So that's melanin, M-E-L-A-N-I-N, and A-N-D, medicine.co. And we will include all your information in the show notes for anyone that's interested in following what you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for continuing to support this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a five-star review. And if you haven't done so, subscribe so you continue to get the updated episode. Until later, peace. Medicine.